Lana, and welcome to Graphic Policy Radio, the show where comics and politics meet. And this is a very special episode. We'll be talking about a very special Star Wars movie, Star Wars Rogue One. I'm being joined with two of the freshest nerd savvy voices in film criticism whose work I've enjoyed extensively and who I'm looking forward to bringing to you. Uh, first is one of our returning guests. Charles Pulliam Moore. He's a blogger at Fusion, where he writes about race, sexuality, and inclusion in nerd culture. Um, and I'll also be joined with Sean Lau, who has his own podcast called No Totally Podcast uh, about film and social issues. And I really enjoy that podcast as well. You may, I, I feel like Sean and I first connected over discussing Doctor Strange and whitewashing. So I'll always sort of have that particular. Uh, thematic association in our conversations because your your um, writing about that was so powerful and useful to those oh, to, to my own informing my own discussion. So, uh, welcome to the show, you guys. Hey, thanks a lot. Yeah, so thanks for I having us. Sort of start. <laughs> I wanted to sort of start by giving each person real quickly like some context for what your relationship is with the Star Wars. Um, universe as it were because i definitely think that that informs how people feel about the the movie i just want to say for our listeners that this is going to be 100 percent spoilers we will spoil everything like the whole point of this conversation is to really dig deep into the movie what it did what it didn't do what the symbolism means what we got from the film and to do that we're going to talk about how the movie ended and all these other points so if you haven't seen it yet go watch the movie i thought the movie was excellent uh, and then come back and listen to us after you have. So for myself, um, Star Wars was like literally my childhood. Star Wars and the Beatles <laughs> were like the only popular culture things that I really engaged in as a small child. Uh, and Star Wars meant the world to me. But I did not really continue being a, I don't, there's not like a Trekkie, the word for being a Star Wars fan. But as much as, you know, I, I had all the toys. I mean, as many of the toys as I could get away with having that I bought used because I'm a little bit young uh, for that, um, you know, growing up. And I, like, dressed up as Luke Skywalker, and I wanted to be Luke Skywalker so bad. Uh, but I'm not someone who was involved in Star Wars fandom. I'm not someone who read the Extended Universe books. I, I, you know, I, I wasn't involved at that level. And it's definitely not something that I kept up with really as an adult. Um, so uh, I came into this movie not having watched the Rebels TV show cartoon, um, not having done really any homework on the movie whatsoever, just sort of coming at it with fresh eyes, but as somebody who, you know, loved Star Wars as a kid and who liked the new movie um, and who actually did not watch the last two parts of the prequels because they were obviously bad. So why would I ruin, why would I ruin my time with that? Uh, so what about you, Charles? Um, I, I'm, I'm, we're kind of similar um, in that I never really – was all that into Star Wars. Um, I come from a family of nerds, um, people who love Star Wars, but for whatever reason, I just never really latched onto it. Um, I, um, you know, I'm a little, I'm a little young to be like a part of like the OG fandom. And by the time I was sort of old enough to appreciate sci-fi the way that I do now, I had developed like a disdain for older sci-fi. And so watching mm. the original trilogy was always kind of like rough for me because I'm like, oh, this is old. Like, oh, this, like look at these, look at this <laughs> terrible puppetry. You know, like the the nostalgia factor was never really there for me. Um, but as sort of like apathetic as I was about Star Wars, by the time I sort of became um, aware of pop culture, Star Wars had become a part of like a larger pop culture canon, right? It's sort of like. Uh, 
Star Wars has permeated parts of pop culture that have nothing to do um, with sci-fi or fantasy. And just in being aware of things, you gain like a base level awareness of like what the basic premise is, you know, what the mythos is. And it's sort of anathema as this is to say, my first like introduction to Star Wars were, you know, the second set of trilogies. And because I didn't really have a frame of reference for it, I thought things were fine. I still like episodes one through three because, like, they are a different kind of movie, right? They're about, like, a kid and you see those little pod racers. And ultimately, they're, like, about politics, which sort of interested me when they came out. Like, the, the, the scenes of seeing, like, Senator Amidala, you know, navigate her way through um, the Senate really stuck with me as a kid. Um, that and, you mm-hmm. know, Natalie uh, Portman's costume changes. Um, and so in, a, in, in an odd way, I consumed um, the entire series in a semi-chronological sense. So, like, I would see the first three movies as they came out in theaters. And it wasn't until um, episode three had, like, after I'd come out of episode three and been like, eh, all right, that I went back and watched uh, the original trilogies with, like, a discerning eye. Um, and sort of, you know, even still never really fell in love with it. Um, it wasn't until The Force Awakens last year that I was like, oh, like this is, you know, that, that weird campiness that always kind of turned me off in the original Star Wars films. I could kind of retroactively see what would have engrossed me in that world had I been alive, you know, and like cognizant mm. back in the, back in the 70s. Um, yeah. Got it. I understand that. Sean, what about you? Uh, I'm pretty actually similar to both of you. I I think like the way that I think about it is that if the internet didn't exist, I would consider myself like a huge Star Wars fan. But <laughs> the fact that the internet does exist, like I can go on and see how many people are way bigger fans than I am and know a lot yes. more than I do. Yes. Um, yes. But but I I felt like a huge fan when I was a kid, um, just you know just knowing what the movies were. But um, but yeah, I, I would say I'm pretty much on a on a similar level uh, as both of you. I I do not like the prequels, uh, um, for probably actually for exactly the reasons that Charles uh, outlined. Um, too much politics, in my opinion. Um, politics and, and space are fun. Well, <laughs> most things nine. are That's fun in space. Like DS Space Nine is my favorite Star my favorite Star Trek by like a million miles. So I don't know. Maybe I should. <laughs> go back and watch two and three or something, but I, there's so much, um, I like lore. I like, um, I, Star Wars is so interesting because it's a mix of futurism and I don't know what the opposite of that is. Um, like the lightsabers are so old school. The force is pretty old school. And then you got blasters. Like it's this meeting of technology and mysticism that I just think Mm -hmm. is really, really fascinating. Um, Especially, you know, if, if you get in touch with it when you're a kid, like anywhere between 10 mm. and like 16, I think for me, you know, it, it's I, I remember wanting to like figure out how to scientifically make an actual lightsaber. Um, like one of the first <laughs> big heartbreaks in my life was when I was talking uh, to my mom's boyfriend at the time who actually made stuff like um, he made things he made like like props for, for magicians and that kind of thing. So he had a really good idea of how to fabricate things and had a really good idea of, you know, illusion and that kind of thing. And so he was the perfect guy to ask. And I asked him, you know, what would we have to do to build an actual lightsaber? And he goes, there's no way to make light just stop like that. And I was like Mm -hmm. 10 and I was like, Oh, the rest of my life, 
is just not worth it anymore. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so my, my first intellectual heartbreak uh, came courtesy of Star Wars. Uh, but yeah, I'm I I really really like almost everything about Star Wars, even though I have not kind of consumed all of it. I have read the Thrawn trilogy, which. Uh, if neither of you has, I think it would actually hit all the buttons that, that both of you described. Uh, so I would highly recommend that. Um, hmm. But yeah, and I loved Rogue One. I was a huge fan. Oh yeah. Yeah, I. I think there's something really to be said for like. One. Oh, sorry. Like I was sorry, just going to say, like the the thing that really helped me come into appreciating Star Wars um, was the not just like the fandom as a whole, but in particular like the encyclopedic wiki community that's been dedicated to like um, just cataloging all of it and making it easily digestible because the expansiveness of the expanded universe, because I was just like walking through borders as a kid, you would see Star Wars books and there's, you know, just rows and rows of them. They're so thick and you're like, Oh, I'm sure this is fun, but I, I can't, you know, like, the Harry Potter books are just very contained and together, whereas, you know, there are all of these characters throughout, you know, multiple star systems. But, like, now with the wiki community, you'll offhandedly hear someone mention, like, uh, the Darksaber. And there's like, mm, what is that? And, you know, you hop on wiki, look it up, and you're like, oh, that's interesting. And then you just sort of, like, file it away for later. You know what I mean? And there's this way that you yeah. can consume bits and pieces of that universe piecemeal in a way that feels very non-committal and accessible now so that when you, mm. you know, when you sit through something like Rogue One, you'll hear um, another offhanded mention of something that you just have like a casual awareness of that makes it feel like, oh, like you don't have to be ensconced in like the deep, deep lore that I feel like a lot of the books created in, in a way that was uh, a little polarizing. There are those people who like dove into it head on and, you know, the people who like me who are like, eh, keep it. <laughs> you know, that's interesting because you made me think about the thing. When I, as far as I know, I have always known who Bib Fortuna was, and I had a Bib Fortuna action figure, and I got my action <laughs> figures used, right? So there was no, like, package that he came in. And I don't know yeah. why I know who Bib Fortuna is. There was no internet when I was a child. There was not a handbook <laughs> for the universe that I owned. I do not know why I have this knowledge. And that's kind of curious to me. Like, now I know why we know all of these things. And, yeah, like, the wiki community is incredibly helpful. And I, I, you know, use it as a resource for some of my own preparation for this. But there's pieces of this that's just like, why do I know this? And, in fact, I know the Star Wars movies, much like you, Sean. I had the picture books with the little record that you would play and turn the page. And, yeah, like, I saw that before I was able to see empire as a kid because i would have like cried and been scared if i saw empire when i was three but i know i listened to that record when i was like barely walking around so yeah it's sort of a like star wars as a story existed beyond the movie for me even at my first experience of the of it yeah it is amazing how much of that knowledge is common to all of us i think especially with all of us being around the same age i might be a little bit older than both of you so i don't want to insult you no, uh, with me being, a, you know, the me. old man of, uh, okay. <laughs> uh, but yeah, just like, just the fact that, you know, as you're saying, it's, it's something that exists in the culture that's outside of the container that it was originally poured into. Um, a, a little bit of that is what intimidates me, like maybe why I'm not more of kind of a, a fan that's deep into it, because I kind of, like, I'm kind of a completionist, right? Like, 
I read the Thrawn mm. trilogy because there were only three of those books. Uh, <laughs> right, there may be exactly. more, I don't know. But but I was like, all right, so I got episodes four through six, and now I got these three books, and, and that's it. I'm not going to read the uh, you know, the Han and Chewie spinoff. I read the Droids comic book that I think Marvel put out uh, way back, like mm. in the 80s. Um, but again, like that was difficult for me because those issues would come out every week, and I was a kid, so I couldn't reliably get down to the comic store, so I dropped off reading right. that because... Like, you know, I needed to know everything beginning to end. And so the sprawling nature of it that Charles was referring to, I think, really, um, it's great that people out there can have that relationship with it. Um, it it scares me. It intimidates me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And there's this idea of like the hyper, you know, the hyper encyclopedic nerd who, you know, who, you know, through through sheer force of will. Um, can recall all of it. And as a kid, a lot of those people were adults, right? Like, I feel like we're, we're living <laughs> in an age now where the idea of, like, gatekeeper nerds who are sort of determining what makes one person, you know, a true believer or, like, a true fan of something, that's sort of being torn down by um, the ways in which a lot of this has become more mainstream pop culture and just access to technology. But, like, you know, back in the mid-90s when you just, you know, hear like, – what's coming to mind to me is, like, jokes on that 70s show where they would quote Star Wars back and forth, and I, I had no frame of reference for it at all. And it's like, oh, like, you're like those kids in school who are preternaturally good at math. Like, I just don't have that. I'm not, you know, oh. I, I, I'm, I'm, too, I'm too chicken shit to really get into it. And so that's what sort of <laughs> right. made the trilogy – like fun for me as a kid because it's like oh this is clearly a children's movie right like at its core like a lot of people forget that even though you know war is in the name george lucas when he originally envisioned these films was aiming for like a relatively young demographic as is evidenced you know by the puppets Mm -hmm. and the cuteness and the hokiness Mm -hmm. of it all right it's gone on to become a larger (laughs) thing but as it went on like it, it it became this like this 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 megalith that had you know a much wider fan base and as that crystallized you know a lot of it did become kind of inaccessible particularly to people who weren't um who didn't latch on to it and their in their in their youth um but yeah i will i will until the day that i die i will defend the original trilogy as being a nice entry point for us latecomers noted yeah i think i was probably too old and cynical when they came but the point that you raise about like Star Wars being for kids, which is you know especially true when you're like pod racing and I'm eight. Star Wars Rogue One is not for kids, and I know some parents who brought their kids, and I cried throughout the movie many many times. I actually went to see the movie again partially because I wanted to know if I would cry again, and the answer is yes. Um, (laughs) And I don't think that Rogue One is just a movie that's more for adults because everybody dies in the end. I think that Rogue One is also a movie for adults because it shows sci-fi war in a way that Star Wars has never committed to before. The -the on-the-ground street fighting that is happening in Jeddah feels real. I feel like I'm there, and it was very hard to watch, and I'm really glad that they did it that way. I think people need to have some of that, like, shoved in to our recreation at this point in time. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that, like, I mean, you know, we've... I, I wasn't, like, following the story. of I didn't know what to expect going to the movie whatsoever. I was so busy with election stuff, I did not pay attention to any of the um, discourse around it. So I didn't, I didn't know what it was until I got in there. And then watching this in light of, like, the Trump election, like, this is, like, a mm. very traumatic, very hard movie 
that is very got an incredibly emotional response from me to the point where it's hard for me to talk about the movie as in terms of how well executed it was. Like one of my favorite movie critics, Alyssa Rosenberg, is a huge Star Wars geek who like did read all the mm. expanded universe novels, like depth of knowledge beyond beyond. She was not a fan of it on a cinematic level and like explained why. And I like can't even begin to talk about that. Like I, I'm not able to process the film with an analytic eye really at all. I'm relating to it on an emotional level that is coming at it through the political experience of where I am right now. Um, mm. But I feel regardless, I'd still be saying that I think it's a very good movie. Like I, I, I think it's a very good movie. I think it's better than TFA, but not better for than than the Force. Oh, sorry, I think it's better than the Force Awakens for me as an adult, but certainly The Force Awakens is the ideal Star Wars movie, I would say, for a child. It's ideal. Um, so, I mean, what did you, do you guys, you guys, it seems like you guys liked Rogue One, yeah? I yes. loved it. But like, like you were saying, like the trauma, it does, it hits a lot of those similar Star Wars beats, but it looks at them in a much more realistic way. You know, there is a old, um, uh, overused trope of like, oh, you have a kid who's abandoned by their parents when they're young and they grow up to become a freedom fighter of some sort, you know, which is true of Ray and Luke um, and Leia to an extent. But it's kind of like what we see happening to Jin, it's not that her parents just like magically disappear or like are absent, you know, for reasons that are unexplained. You know, her father is dragged away by warmongers and her mother shot in front of her, right? And that mm-hmm. is that it's, it's, we're showed that in such like, a visceral way that a lot of the critiques that I've seen um, in reviews of the films about Felicity Jones's performances being a bit internalized and stiff. I'm like, dude, this, you know, this girl grew up being raised by like a low key crazy person after assuming that her parents are both dead, you know, mm-hmm. but she's not exactly going to be a font of ebullience and, you know, and it's fun, you know, she's, she, I, that, that withdrawnness resonated with me in a very sort of like deep way that made those scenes in which she did open up about, you know, being elated to see that her father was still alive, even if only through the hologram that hit me really hard. That was like the only moment I really felt myself like tearing up a little bit. I'm like, Oh, Felicity Jones is bringing it right now. Cause like this girl for all intents and purposes has just been dead on the inside. Uh, for the vast majority of her life, only to have, you know, this glimmer of hope, um, you know, reawakened within her. I I really think that everybody who we have a relationship, all the good guys, they're all survivors who have been traumatized by war and by violence. Like, Mm. so clearly the case with everybody. Some critic, Mm. I won't say who, was like, I don't understand why Cassian's uh, feels, you know, what his guilt and motivation is. And I'm like, What? The first thing you see him do is kill one of his informants. He's not a sociopath. So a spy who believes the cause he's fighting for, who feels like he has to kill one of his informants, is going to feel like shit. So, like, mm-hmm. you see, like, the emotional burden that he's taken on. Like, all of this is, like, you know, it's a big deal. He's an intelligence officer. He's not a, specifically a soldier. He's someone who's been running around and doing bad stuff to people who he's befriended in order mm-hmm. for a higher cause for years. And that will destroy you. Um, but also his so, informant really yeah. quiet. Like, I just remember okay. being like, dude, please. Like, his informant was making far too much noise. Like, I felt like that oh, was yeah. definitely <laughs> a moment where Gareth should have just, like, Gareth Edwards should have stepped in and like, okay, I need you to dial it down just a little bit because you are doing a job right now and you are clearly going to get caught if you keep screaming at the top of your lungs. Um, then he got shot. 
Well, he <laughs> shot him. Like, he shot him to make him not, like, like happy and shoot this informant so that they don't get caught by stormtroopers. Necessary. And and he's just, like, and he's, he's not happy about the shit that he's had to do in the name of the cause. And he says with, with, his, with Cassian's commandos who come and join him at the end for the, for the run on the, the desert, not sorry, the beachside resort of evil, um, like these are all, you know, intelligence officers who've had to do horrible shit. And we want to make sure that the horrible shit we did was in the name of something. So, like, let us justify those, you know, the things that we've done that were terrible by, like, making sure that we serve this greater cause. Um, I mean, yeah, everybody's a survivor and everybody's been traumatized. And, like, Bodhi, who, like, wasn't traumatized to start it, is traumatized by the second time we see him because he's been put through this torture. He's been tortured by I, – I've, my headcanon is that Saul Guerrero, like, probably had that weird monster attack his brain and as part of some process himself and is now, like, you know, dishing oh, it out to others. That is- that is a very charitable interpretation of Forrest Whitaker's performance, which I found mm, not great. <laughs> I was like, Saul Guerrero, what are you doing, man? Just, just speak. Just speak to the people. Like, or rather, I feel like it's like a lot. A lot's been written about like the reshoots, and there are some moments where you kind of feel as if Forrest Whitaker was at one point a part of a much larger storyline for his character, but yeah, definitely edited. He just, like, pops up, you know, he does his whole, like, eccentric Don King-looking person man thing. When he, like, sixes, psychic octopus on his prisoner. And then he's like, eh, I'm good. This is, this is where I exit the movie. It's all just, okay. But I, I, like, I like that idea that he, in trying to numb the pain of, you know, a lifetime of guerrilla warfare, has lobotomized himself as a form of, like, self-care. Um. Thing. Oh, also, fun thing. So his name, Guerrero, I was like, this is a reference to Guerrero, which is warrior in Spanish. Like, I, I yes. don't know if these are things that, like, I need to say, but, like, I shouldn't assume that, like, everybody speaks a little bit of Spanish. I don't know. And then the whole thing was, like, Ursa, like, that's, like, the root word for bear, and I kind of think about the bears protecting their bear cubs in terms of the symbolism of bear names. I feel like there's a lot of, like, low-level, like, name association symbolism, and yet I could not remember the character's names the first time I saw it, very hard to do that. And I'm incredibly good at that. And the fact that I had a hard time with it is like, I don't know how normal people did on that one. Um, But (laughs) once you sat and looked at the names, you're like, oh, okay. Like there's this, you know, the scarab, like the scarab is like a scarab planet and it's like aqua blue and gold, like Egypt. I don't know. Lots of these associations sort of worked for me in those ways, but they they weren't repeating Mm. people's names nearly often enough stick. That was a problem. Yeah, there were a lot of people uh, in this, right? Like, I, I feel like you have, like, in in episode four, there's not a ton of characters. Um, and then, like, we, we, we're getting, like, weirder and weirder, I guess, spellings as everything goes on. And yeah. I feel like a lot of my brain is still kind of dedicated to the characters in The Force Awakens as well. Because, like, regardless <laughs> of the number of times I see all of these people being shipped with one another on Twitter, I still can't like quite remember who is who. Um, <laughs> like, and then in, in, uh, in, well, just in the, in the last two Star Wars movies, like I, they all oh, kind of okay. get lumped together a little bit for me. That might just be me, but um, in, in Rogue One, especially like they kind of, they drop all these uh, like planet names on you as well. Like at, pretty much at the exact same time that you're learning all the character names. 
And so it gets yeah. really, really confusing as to like what, who's, who's what. Um, but yeah, I identify with you on that. I stopped trying to ca- keep track of the names uh, about halfway through. But also I kind of love it because it's like, oh, you mean to tell me that this one last outlaw Jedi going by Ben Kenobi couldn't be found? Come on now. Like, let's, let's like lay it on me. Like, take me to a galaxy far, far away where people have names that you've never heard before. And you'll see, you'll, you'll yeah. learn them in time. It's fine. You'll buy the merch and learn them. Yeah. No, definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I love the name. Like, that, that's something that I've always kind of thought about is that these names, like, they feel so Star Wars-ish, right? Like, the, like Jyn Erso being spelled J-Y-N. Like, it, it, it for some reason, it feels so very Star Wars. Um, it's kind of like how, like, Christmas songs always sound like Christmas songs, even though, like, they can be about, like, different aspects of Christmas, but they always sound like a song for that part of the season for some reason. Like there's yeah. some kind of scale that's a Christmas scale specifically or, or something. Actually, I think my, my actual uh, guess on that is that if you put sleigh bells in a Christmas song, it'll sound like Christmas song no matter what, like even if it's death metal. Anyway. Um, yeah, no, that's true. And I, I have examples of that I can point you to. So Nice. Yeah. <laughs> we'll, do, we'll wait so, uh, 11 months for the Christmas episode. <laughs> so with um, like with terms of the movie, it's like having like the most raw depiction of war that I've seen in Star Wars. Like, what I mean? Did you guys have, have an emotional response to the street fighting scenes? I I thought that the um, the Death Star blowing up the city of Jeddah was one of the most powerful depictions of a nuclear weapon I've seen in a movie. Um, and mm. the whole comments about like there's a problem on the horizon, there is no horizon. So sort of watching the whole area implode and then explode how the EMT blast wiped out their ability to use a holograph machine the force of it all and the impact of it all was incredibly powerful and I was like I hope people like watch this and were like oh yeah nuclear weapons we have a lot of those that's not good like I'm really mm-hmm. hoping that, that that I mean the Death Star was created as a metaphor for nuclear weapons like this is literally what it's supposed to do I think that Rogue One did a good job of a I, I think of reminding people like that's what nuclear weapons do and showing it at mm. a really visceral level and the destruction of the city of Jeddah is more powerful than watching the destruction of whatever planet got blown up in the force awakens because you were there right. like in it and the force awakens one was pretty powerful it was like they showed you the country you know they show you the city whatever but in this movie they nailed it with the display of force and yeah. the visual effect that they used and the people's reaction to it afterwards, like, really I, mean, I would even compare and, it to the destruction yeah. of Alderaan. Like, we're, we're, we're meant mm. to understand that, you know, Leia has lost her planet, and that's true, right? Everyone's gone. But throughout the entirety of the series, I never really got the feeling that Leia was all that, you know, bruised up inside about it. You know, like, obviously, mm-hmm. it's one of the reasons that she's a part of the resistance, but she's just kind of like, oh, yeah, my planet's gone. That sucks. Like, let's go kill these bad people. But well, like, well, it's like what you're saying. To see them trying to outrun the destruction of a planet, you know, from within the atmosphere, is like, oh, shit, like, will they actually make it? And I feel like there's, a, there's an exchange where um, K2 is explaining that he's trying to do the calculations to make sure that they can, you know, um, warp off the planet and you know he's trying to make sure that they don't hit debris on the way out and everyone's just like fuck it like go like go 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 like we will you know yeah. if we waste there are we don't have seconds to spare to really worry about whether or not we crack a windshield here but that hit me mm-hmm. 
Yeah. I mean, I got to say as, as a part Japanese American and, and someone who, um, you know, if I say the wrong thing on Twitter, someone's going to invoke the, uh, the atomic bombs that were dropped on Japan by the United States, uh, in world war II, mm-hmm. the, the combination of that first, uh, usage of the Death Star that you're mentioning, and then the one at the end, which is, you know, it looks very much like a Pacific beach um, being run up on by an atomic uh, bomb. Like, yeah, I mean, it was very, it it, it certainly conjured those images in my mind. And, and um, yeah, it's it just, I don't know what else to say other than, like, yeah, I, I, I certainly repeat the emotion that it's, like, that it's it's extremely powerful and well done in this movie, probably owing a lot to the fact that uh, Ilana, as you mentioned, we are on the ground level with these characters at all times, basically. Right. And it's, I think it's such an apt metaphor because, um, or an apt way of contextualizing it because the previous star Wars movies are like, there's so much more about philosophy and about politics and about government and about, that kind of thing than they are about kind of the horrors of war, right? So this the saving mm-hmm. Private Ryan-ness of Rogue One uh, contributes, like gives you that space to show how horrific that kind of thing is. But I agree. I mean, like that's, it was borderline traumatizing to see, especially at the end, to have that imagery of it coming across the ocean. Um, you know, not only is Japan obviously mm-hmm. uh, uh, an island nation, but I also grew up in Hawaii, uh, on the beach for most of my life. So like, yeah, I, I mean, it was, it, it really, uh, it really hit me. The the death of the two main characters in, in particular really, really hit me. I, right, I, and, I don't think we've said it yet, but everyone dies. Like everyone dies. Yeah. Like they're like, no one, no one makes it out, which is something that yeah. we all sort of got the impression that this was going to be a suicide mission. Um, but, you know, we all assumed that it would be a Disneyfied suicide mission. Right. So it's like, yeah. Oh, you know, well, perhaps they would get blown up in a spaceship and you'd see an explosion. It's like, Oh no, no, no. Like we are going to watch as these people are engulfed in, you know, planet wide mm-hmm. flames um, or as, you know, yeah, they've been shot exactly mortally. And, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Because I mean like what, it was there was a lot of, there was a yeah. lot of like media hemming and hawing when some of the first reviews came out that were, were sort of making the point that this is the first uh, star Wars film, but that was actually about war. And everyone was like, Oh, but war is in the name. But if you go back Not and look at, you know, if you, it's, yeah. right, you go back and look at some of the, the scenes in which um, stormtroopers die, um, part of it's the acting, but, you know, they just sort of like fall over and it's very, it's comical almost, right, to see, um, you know, these people in, these, uh, in, the, in the white suits just sort of crumple. Um, but there are certain um, street fighting scenes where they, you, see, um, you see stormtroopers who don't actually die as a result of being shot directly, but from the impact of being near an explosion, um, which is an aspect of war that a lot of people don't know exactly because mm-hmm. we don't show it in film, mm-hmm. that oftentimes it's mm-hmm. not being engulfed in flames. It's literally the sh- like the shockwave of being so close to like a violent explosion, you know, will kill you. Yeah. And you just see stormtroopers, you know, being blown, not to smithereens, but just sort of like the life being drained out of them. And it's like, oh, these are, you know, clones or not, these are people who are, you know, who are, who are gone. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I feel like, I love, um, like the, oh, sorry. No, go ahead. The, the gorilla scene in Jedi, which I just keep coming back to because I thought it was so freaking powerful. Like seeing like people who were like an irregular army of like regular, you know, people of various alien backgrounds and human backgrounds 
like throwing down in the middle of a town square where they knew they were going to end up killing random people. And then the, the shot of a little girl crying in the middle of the street for her mom, which was like, that was the first time I cried in the movie. I was just like, that's a direct call to the image from the Vietnam War of the little girl like running down the street with like with, with, with who had got napalms and who had like torn off her clothes. Right. Like like that, I felt like that was a direct call to that. And of course, it works because that always works. And that, of course, is what made that's the first time we see our heroine do anything heroic. Is she sees there's a little mm-hmm. girl who's crying in the street and she's going to save her. And then when she decides she's going to do something with a big, like, even more heroic is after she realizes, like, oh, I saved this little girl, but that whole fucking town got blown up. So that little girl is dead, and her mom is dead, and everybody there is dead. And I think that that, that, they, that shows you, like, the change in her, uh, in her politics of, like, realizing that, you know, like, you can save this one person, but you're really not saving them unless you're taking part of this, like, taking part in this bigger, more political process of fighting mm-hmm. in a conflict. Yeah. Um, so that's really messed up, but I think it was, it was really earned. But talking about, speaking of everybody, like, dying, um, I mean, in, in terms of the ending, like, what do you, to me, like, the significance of the fact, I think, I, this is, like, literally the first note that I wrote down, which shows you how important I think this is. The fact that the movie ends with, like, nameless Alderanian soldiers handing off a flash drive from one hand to another hand as they all get fucking slaughtered by Darth Vader, mm-hmm. but they keep doing it because they know how important each one of them is. And it is nameless Alderanian soldiers, right? Getting it done is so powerful. Um, like, yeah. you know, like, none of these people, not, not like, Rogue One, that call sign does get to live on, but, like, random Alderaan guys in the final scene who Darth Vader does a glorious job of taking down, like, nobody knows who the fuck those guys are, and all of those guys are heroes, and the movie made a point of showing us right. that those guys have faces. Yeah. For what I, when I, like, during that scene, I, and this is terrible, because, like, you're saying, these people, you know, died heroically, but I kept thinking about that scene in The Incredibles where um, Helen Parr is stretching her way through multiple doors that have shut on her as she's reaching for <laughs> a key to unlock herself. And I thought to myself, like, there's this weird, there's this weird, um, cinematic rhyming within Disney's like visual language that's just evoking these two very different hmm. ways in which um, uh, nameless like nameless soldiers uh, like function in war movies obviously incredible isn't like a war movie proper but you know you have these you have these nameless people like wandering around doing the bidding of a larger force than them um, just sort of like it made me giggle just to sort of take myself <laughs> out of the horror of the moment um, but that scene, I will say this, like as someone who doesn't love, love, love the original trilogy, this, like that last sequence legitimized Star Wars for me, right? Like, like leading up to, I'm granted, like there are some continuity errors because like Vader has seen um, where the plans are. Um, so that whole questioning, that whole exchange, like, oh, we're on, excuse me, we're on like, I forget the exact phrase. And she's like, oh, no, we just happen to be floating through space. Like, we don't have any plans here. You're so crazy, Vader. Like, that makes no sense anymore. <laughs> but but seeing that, like, oh, it's going to pick up right where um, episode four picks up was like, oh, oh, that's fun. Like, I want to go, but, like, I want to I keep this momentum going. Even though the tone and the story is going to shift, it made me want to, like, go back and reevaluate my feelings about episode four. Yeah. Mm. 
It is really cool that like there's a there's like a law and order kind of uh, feel, right? Like where you have like the here's the, the side of the story uh, with the cops on the street, and then here's the side of the story with the lawyers in, in the courtroom. Like I feel like Rogue oh. One really fills that hole of being the, the law side of that, right? So or the order side, whichever whichever side that is, the cop side. Um, <laughs> but I think that's like super super necessary because. There, there are all these hints, especially in the first three movies, the original trilogy. Um, there are all these hints that all these things happened in the course of the rebellion, right? Not just things that, um, not just sacrifices that were made in order to fight the empire, you know, directly, or not just things that were uh, morally unambiguous, right? And I think Diego Luna's character in this movie really does represent that that whole concept of you know going into something like empire strikes back in the beginning um of the movie like there's this idea that they're driven you know from base to base and they're not they're not always doing morally pure things and mm-hmm. i think because the original trilogy and actually the 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 uh, prequels you know are so much meant to be kids movies they can hint at those things, but not present them. And I feel like Rogue One really, it's one of those, it's almost like, uh, it's almost like the Netflix Marvel uh, series because Mm -hmm. we know that we're not going to get something, you know, that's hardcore and satisfying like Daredevil from the, from the MCU as far as the movies, right? We're not going to get like the street level. Yeah. We're not going to get the street level dark side stuff. Um, And I feel like Rogue One is kind of the, the Netflix uh, version, the Netflix MCU version of the Star Wars universe, and wow, yeah, like I didn't, I didn't know I was gonna be so here for that, you know? Yeah, um, I, no, you're totally. And they could have right. screwed it up so easily. Wow, that's super yeah, that, sharp. That was it. I, I mean, wh- this sort of actually brings me into one of the things I wanted to to bring up with you guys is. So, like, this is the Star Wars movie where, like, everyone dies. And that's new for the series. And there have been deaths before, but it hasn't been like this. And I was common. One of the things I left the movie saying to my friends, I was like, there weren't that many women. Like, I literally sat there counting. And I, you know, I counted, like, one woman X-Wing pilot, one woman transport pilot. Um, there was, like, no women in Cassian's, like, strike force of dudes. His crew, right. And is wrecking crew, like none. And I was saying this and my friend's like, oh, well, that's because they don't, Star Wars won't show women dying. And I was, and this was a female friend of mine. And I was like, hmm. huh. And I'm wondering, hmm. is that why? I don't know. I, 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 I honestly Yeah, but there was like so. no women. There the are, so there are some lovely like callbacks to the original set of X-Wing uh, fighters that you see in the original trilogy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> pilots, sorry. Um, Red, Red Five see... dies, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. right, right. Like, Gold oh, leader. takes it. Right. And yeah, exactly. my, I was I was sitting with my boyfriend, we were watching the movie, um, and I leaned over to him, he leaned over to me, he's like, there's like no female pilots, and almost on cue, like the first female pilot pops up on screen. Yeah. So there, I think there's more than one. There, there are like three, and it's clear that like, Someone was like someone was sitting sitting in the editing bay and like oh wait hmm, there are no women here and literally just like sprinkled them all in within like a cluster of five minutes or so um, and then most of them promptly die and I think that it really is you know of, of the many things that I love about the movie I do think that there was a lack of foresight and just like not necessarily 
just featuring, you know, obviously there's a female lead in the film, but I think that there's still this endemic problem of people not realizing that women are a part of the tapestry of any story, right? Like you have a mm-hmm. few standouts like Mon Mothma, um, yeah. the, I don't, I don't recall her name, but the black woman who has a couple of lines yeah. when all of the, the rebellion leaders are talking, necklace. the Senator, yeah. right. Yeah. So you have them all, they're like the necklace and the headdress, she's great. And you see them and they're sort of held up and like, Hey, Hey, here we are. But then in those scenes where you just see <laughs> rebels, uh, like running around in the hangars, like, you know, getting shit done, you don't see women, right? Like you don't just see no, women just hanging about being a part of the background. And you're like, this is gross. Where, where are they? And it's not, I, have, I don't yep. think it's because, I don't, I, I, I just don't really think it's because we don't want to see women, you know, in war. I think that people literally just still don't think to include women in movies like these. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I have a, like a couple of sets of theories and these are, you know, given how much people talk about Star Wars, these are probably all over the internet. I don't, I don't know. Um these are coming from my head, so if they're really bad, uh, I'll take the credit. Um, but first of all, we have droids, and the droids, in a lot of senses, kind of fulfill the what you would consider kind of the normative roles of women in a mm. lot of these films. Um, C-3PO is very feminine. Whether all of that is intentional or not, um, you know, obviously it's hard to say. But I also think that even, you know, The Force Awakens and Rogue One are essentially limited in the same way that the original trilogy was in the 70s and 80s. Um, and in the 70s and 80s, and um, l- let me just kind of like say off the bat that I'm not, I'm not trying to excuse the lack of women, and especially the lack of women of, of color um, in this film, sp- or in this franchise specifically. Yeah. Um, but the way that I kind of see it is in the 70s, like you didn't, this idea of women being involved in war, um, you know, I mentioned Saving Private Ryan earlier, like it, it's it's historically accurate that that film is yeah. filled with men, right? So in the 70s, when you're depicting war, you know, there's this there's this thing about it being, you know, essentially accurate to, to have it all involve men. And I think that even though you look at something like Rogue One, you see how diverse the cast is and you want to believe, you know, having female leads for the last two movies, Rogue One and The Force Awakens, you want to believe that, like, that Star Wars is kind of getting with the more progressive times. I think there's a way you can look at it where you understand that the the rules really are still dictated by the original trilogy and mm. the way that the culture, you know, dictated men and women interact and show up in film in the 70s and 80s, because... You know, as as has been discussed, I think extensively since uh, Carrie Fisher passed recently, um, Princess Leia is not at all, you know, a stereotypical woman in this kind of uh, in this kind of setting, right? Uh, she's not a damsel in distress, even though people want to call her one. Uh, because Carrie, Carrie Fisher, Fisher rewrote the script, basically. Right. Yeah, and you know, yeah, she took out a lot of the you know, I'm, I'm just the woman. Let me do some uh, explanatory dialogue here. And let me ask some questions right. that are really obvious so that the men can answer them, you know? And so that, that character princess Leia is shaped in such a way where, yeah, you know, she's, she's a leader in the rebellion. She is not at all um, a bystander. Right. And so anyway, getting back to, you know, if we're going to give the force awakens and rogue one credit for having a strong female lead, 
and then kind of use that as a jumping point to say, well, why aren't they doing these other things better? You know, why don't they have more women in the background? Why don't why aren't the women, you know, weaved into the tapestry, as Charles said? I, I think we may be kind of misunderstanding, you know, where where the movies are coming from with that. I don't know if that makes any sense. I'm sorry. Did I wrap that up in a way that makes any sense? I mean, sort of like you're saying, like these movies are actually not woke at all. And that's why they haven't included it into the DNA of the story, really. Yeah. I, my, so my question would be like, if Princess Leia was not as strong of a character in the original trilogy, would we have female leads for The Force Awakens and Rogue One? Because... Mm. Well, I wouldn't have because seen it as a child. Character of My Jin... parents like let me watch that movie because they're like, oh, there's a princess, but she's not the usual stupid, weak princess. So this is an okay piece of pop culture to expose her child to. Like that yeah. was why mm. I loved the movie. I, I know I, that like, uh, people with like my family are not the majority, but I know a lot of kids who have the same thing with their parents. Like, oh, this is feminist. Yeah. I just, I kind of feel like, like the, I mean, Jin could have been written as a man or a woman, right? Like, uh, I think... Definitely. The, uh, her mm-hmm. arc... There's, the there's nothing that really... Ray, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And so yeah, I guess definitely. I guess what I'm saying is that, like, those characters might have been default men, not... or mm, The fact that those characters ended up being played by actresses rather than actors feels definitely like, you know, we want to pay attention to the way that we depict women in this universe and all that kind of stuff. But, uh, again... I, I can't shake the feeling that if Princess Leia didn't exist the way that she did, then you it wouldn't feel as natural of a fit, right? And so I think mm-hmm. when you talk about women of color, when you talk about women being kind of involved uh, in the in the war and, and being on the ground and everything, that's not in there in Rogue One um, because Rogue One is certainly tied more to the original trilogy than The Force Awakens is, right? Just by dint of where it lies chronologically in, in the proceedings. So things that, uh, things that didn't show up in a new hope and things that didn't show up in the empire strikes back, uh, can't really, you know, you can't have like brand new ships like coming out of the base on Yavin because it wouldn't make mm-hmm. you know any sense. Um, so you have right. like those kinds of constraints, uh, again, not to like dismiss any of that. Like, I, I don't think it's a problem that, uh, I don't I don't think it's an unsolvable problem. Like I think there could have been women of color very easily in this movie and in The Force Awakens and you know better female representation overall. But um I, I think and I've seen this on Twitter a lot where you know what you don't want to do is look at the diversity of the cast of Rogue One and say, "Oh, look how look how much they're trying. Like we should totally give them a pass <laughs> and all that kind of stuff, right?" And yeah. like that never you never want to do that. Yeah, and I also like I, I I do like, and it is clearly deliberate from a tweet that one, that one of the script, that one of the writers wrote, which was then deleted, that like the Empire leadership is all white men, like that means something, yeah. and that's important. Like Bodhi is you know is 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 isn't white, but he's like a cargo pilot, sort of how like Finn was just a low level stormtrooper. Like all of the leadership right. are these white men, and that's because they're a fascist organization, and that's what well, they're really interesting. Fascist organization to me are like that. Like. I- I watched, um, I, wa- I rewatched the New Hope recently, and they, I mean, everybody's white in that movie, right? So there's, <laughs> but yeah. the way that you like, the way that you differentiate in that movie is that the Empire British. has, yeah, they have way more British accents, and then you have Luke yeah. and Han, who are like, who have the most American accents ever. They're they're basically both kind of, you know, California <laughs> surfer boys. 
And of course, Leia's, uh, Leia's accent starts off as fairly British and gets extremely American by the end of the movie. Um, so yeah, like again, I think that delineation, it's interesting that all of that was kind of set up by the original movies. Um, but uh, like as you're mentioning, I think it's it's such a smart thing to do to use that delineation in a more modern context and and have that diverse cast. What did you guys think about the performances, like the central performances from the ensemble? I felt everyone. I felt everyone was really strong, um, with a couple of with a couple of falters here and there. Like I had mentioned, my my issues with um, I felt like. Did you guys see uh, Jupiter Ascending? No. Chance, that the Wachowski film. Well, Eddie Redmayne does no. very. Um, Eddie Redmayne does a very affected evil space lord that is distracting uh, to a point. And I, I got I got echoes of that from Forrest Whitaker, um, but from pretty much everyone else um, who wasn't you know more or less a CGI person, um, the performances felt um, despite being in a, in a galaxy far far away, they felt very relatable and grounded um, in that these are a haggard group of people who never quite believe in their mission. I think that in like an instinctive way, they gravitate towards, well, we've already set ourselves on this path and we might as well stick to it. But there's always, you know, that lingering fear. What if the empire catches us and kills us? Right? That sort of, um, that, that, that core fear that the rebels have when they're standing around the table never quite leaves the group, which I appreciated. Right? Oftentimes with Star Wars, I feel as if there's an unrealistic sense of hope. It's like, no, you guys, like, don't forget that you're a ragtag bunch of kids and a couple of you have, you know, some mystic powers, but let us not forget that the empire has built multiple, you know, star eating planet killing machines. Um, you know, that is, that is, that is a force that you should be afraid of, um, you know, have hope, but also be realistic. And that's something that I feel as if everyone really delivered in their performances here. Um, and I appreciated it. Yeah, absolutely. I uh, I feel pretty much the same way. I, I have a, a little bit of a disagreement, I guess, with the Felicity Jones performance, and I'm still kind of trying to figure Ooh. this out. Um, okay. I, I just imagine that, like, there are lines in the script that, that just say, Jin stares plaintively out a window, and, like, maybe, <laughs> maybe three or four times too many. Um, but I have a question... Uh, I guess for both of you, like on on this subject, which is that we have this group of, uh, and I hate using this word when referring to people, but you know what I mean. We have this this diverse group of people, um, <laughs> and who who are led by a white woman. And I was kind of thinking about that just from uh, just from any point of view, just from any angle that I could possibly think of, and. Am I reading too much into this? You can tell me that I am uh, completely off base if, if that's how you feel. I feel like that look is very important to the character of Jin, that plaintive look. Um, and I'm, I'm not sure if it would have worked for a majority of moviegoers if... if um, I don't know I, if it wasn't a white woman who looks like Felicity Jones, who has those like right, really right. typically Eurocentrically light eyes, um, mm. and, and that whole thing. Um, mm -hmm. How how nuts am I? One to ten. 
No, no there might be. Because while there isn't, not not like while there isn't like a you know a forced chosen one in this movie, you know, Jin is chosen in that she is Galen's daughter, right? And I, you know, in theory, she is a bargaining chip to either get him to bend to the Empire's will, um, or to get him to defect, depending on whose perspective you're looking at it from. Um, and because of the ways in which we've, you know, we've discussed that the empire is always coded as white because, you know, they are a fascist organization. There's a, like, we talked about how Jin was, could either be male or female, but given the way that the character was conceived, there are very few, if any ways that she could have been, I don't think, I don't think that realistically the studio ever would have considered a non-white actress to mm. play her given her right. ties mm. to the empire through her father. Um, which, you know, you can, you know, to play devil's advocate from the studio's perspective, you're like, well, that makes, you know, sense within the cinematic narrative. But also it does fall into the Star Wars trap of centering a narrative around, you know, a brunette white woman um, that we've all, you know, <laughs> not, to, not, not to shade Carrie Fisher. Um, and, oh, no, I have forgotten her name. Daisy Ridley. Uh, Daisy Ridley, thank you yeah. very much. Not to, you know, not to not to throw any shade their way, but it's like you are all of a type. Oh, and Natalie Portman, you can't forget, right? Um, yeah. I think that there would have been there's there is a much I don't I don't know how much more interesting, but I think it is a more interesting version of this story in which perhaps Galen was not married to a woman coded as white, right? And that that. Yeah the internal struggle that Jin felt would have extended more than, you know, uh, would have extended deeper into her identity as a person, as opposed to just, you know, who her father worked for, but rather that her father had absconded from the empire for reasons connected to, Oh, perhaps I don't want to participate in the genocide of my wife's family. Right. That oh my God. Much more that makes for a much more compelling idea because we don't, we know nothing of Jen's mother other than she loves her family very much. Right. Um, <laughs> another star Wars trope, everyone, everyone's maternal figures must die. Right. Okay, fine. Mm-hmm. But imagine a version <laughs> of this story in which, you know, Jen's mother is from a browner planet. Right. Um, yeah. That has mm-hmm. been a part of the galactic empire's extermination and Galen leaves because he's like, well, fuck this dude. Like I'm not going to let you kill my wife <laughs> and her people and my daughter. Um, and then that makes, not only would that have made Jen, you know, um, I don't want to say, I, I don't want to, I don't want to say this and sound weird, but in a weird way, there is a class hierarchical system that places Jen above her comrades, right? Because she is mm-hmm. technically a product of the empire, right? Um, in that, like, her father's identity was wrapped up in his relation to the empire and hers vis-a-vis him, and for her to be assisted by, you know, raised by a black man, and then assisted in her, um, you know, in her, her adventure um, by, you know, a group of other men of color, it's like, oh, you know, it's a recreation of the real world structures of power that place, you know, white, you know, white men, and then white women, and then everyone else, you know, in various matrices beneath them. Right? And that, mm-hmm. is a, that is, you know, and that, is, that is not um, a structure that needs to be, or rather it's a structure that can easily be turned on its head in narratives like this, right? Because there are no rules for space, you know, for, for space fantasy. You can do whatever you want. And then ultimately it really just does come down to the idea that the studio is just lazy about it, 
right? Um, I think, yeah. About Biracial Gin would have been a better movie. Go ahead. Like, yeah. yeah. You sold me. Biracial Gin would have been a better movie, definitely. And, yeah. and, and speaking of things that would have been a better movie, I don't want to – I'm sorry? It wouldn't have even needed to have been explained, right? Because these are just logical no. leaps of the imagination that you can make. Yeah, yeah. exactly. I do, like, just, just briefly, things- like, I will say that the the very subtle shade, now that Charles has me thinking of it in a completely different context, I appreciate the very subtle shade of having uh, a white woman be completely irresistible to a group of men of color, at, like, to the point right. where they just end up doing whatever she wants. Right. Oh but mind you, they all have different hairstyles, so they're not quite the same. Oh. <laughs> so speaking of things that would have been better, we need to talk about Shears and Baze's marriage. So I have <laughs> never seen a movie like this where I had been more, hadn't been more like, oh, they're an old married couple. That's obviously what they are. Oh, they're having a moment mm. together. Oh, they're having another moment. Oh, he's dying. Why aren't they kissing? I hate you, Disney. Why? <laughs> but what was so weird to me was that, like, literally not every single other person I've spoken with has had that immediate response to them. And I'm not someone who watched The Force Awakens and left thinking that Finn and, um, and Poe were flirting with each other. Like, that was not a thing that I took from the movie, like, I, I, I believe the actors when they say that they thought that. And I believe having watched it again, I, you know, yeah. But this was like, you are obviously a, a, a couple who's been married for like 40 years and squabbled with each other all the time. That is who you are. <laughs> and yet straight people went and saw that movie and like did not make that assumption. And it's weird. Obviously, they're a married <laughs> couple, but I'd love for you all to weigh in. I am going, I'm going to do chin hands at troubles, but first I'm going to say that... Um, that uh, I I am a straight who did not feel that way, but I can get into that uh, a little bit later. Charles. I mean, I'm just going to start off by saying a man does not just give another man his jacket and say it suits him without that man being like, hey, you know, perhaps you want some more of my clothing and my continued presence in your life. Um, The relationship um, between... Sheard and Bayes is really interesting because the way that they're introduced to us, we are meant to understand. I read them both as like monks of a sort, right? Who had perhaps, mm-hmm. um, who had perhaps forsaken uh, family ties um, and like a sexual relationship in service of the protection of the Kyber crystals. Um, but in their service, the two of them had found each other and found a love that perhaps reads to us as like homo romantic. Um, perhaps homosexual, you know, we don't really, the only people that we know for sure in space who have had sex are the Skywalker people, like everyone like linked to the Skywalkers, they, you know, they've gotten down, but everyone else, we're not really quite sure. Um, but <laughs> with phase and, with phase and cheer, there is this camaraderie that goes deeper than just mere friendship. And, it, you know, there is the, the service layer, um, where one man is blind and the other is his eyes, you know, the heavy to his spiritual mystic. Um, but then as the film sort of unfurls, you see um, you see that Donian's character's faith is something almost that he feels um, his companion has lost, but not necessarily lost, but that he has like taken up for him for a while, right? Like mm, as the empire yeah. has really sort of... Um, ground its heel um, into the lives that they used to have. Um, he lost his faith. Um, 
but they have still sort of like it's, it's still that one or rather that one element of their faith that the one element of his faith that still exists is that um that taught but still very strong relationship that exists between them um that we really do see come full circle in that last scene um after Jared dies I am a little partial to the reading that I've heard from um, queer friends who who make the argument that they won't ship these two characters because queer coded representation is like isn't isn't something that necessarily should be accepted over something uh, like explicitly queer representation. Um, like I'm uh, not to like I want to make sure to stay in my lane uh, as far as that stuff is concerned, but I kind of feel similarly to that. But I also kind of come to it from maybe a useful cultural perspective, which is that uh, so these characters are, are are played by Chinese men, but there is a kind of a trope in Japanese kind of samurai culture of men who are you know, extremely good at whatever it is they do, you know, whether it's Ujimbo, bodyguarding, um, samurai, that kind of thing, you know, kind of going on the road and then partnering up with another man, um, non-romantically to, to kick some ass, uh, for a few episodes or a few issues. And then they kind of part ways again. Um, I do not know enough about this trope to kind of speak more, um, comprehensively on it but from what i can gather like i'm thinking about a show like trigun which is an anime show um Mm. is that those characters like it's essentially you have like your kind of shining white knight main character and the male companions that they usually pick up you know for a little while to defeat a stronger enemy those are slightly more complicated characters, more anti-hero type characters. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that Japanese, a lot of Japanese pop culture, especially in the eighties and nineties, like it, it, you wanted these extremely pure protagonists. You didn't want the complex Clint Eastwood, Han Solo, anti-hero type. Um, so in order to get those kinds of storylines in, you had to kind of partner them uh, with another strong male character and explore it that way. Hmm. Anyway, um, that's kind of what I saw in this relationship. I don't typically see the, like when I think of the kind of samurai character in my head, I, ne- I usually never see them alone. I think about something like Lone Wolf and Cub. I always think about these duos, these like, uh, uh, you know, like Lethal Weapon, right? Like make, like uh, Riggs and Murtaugh. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's kind of how I thought of these two characters as well. And, I uh, like I. W- Hello. 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 Oh, Hello. I think you might have. Sean, I we think you might have lost Sean. Lost. He's in the middle of a point. No, we lost you. Call back. <laughs> um. Okay. I will say two Sean's two. Oh, go ahead. Is he? Go ahead. Is he? Is anyone on the way back? Well, to Sean's point, I, I am one of those queer people who's like, okay, you guys, but explicit queer representation will always trump the implicit. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, to play, you know, to play devil's advocate to myself, um, there is something to be said for, um, 
fandom rallying around the queer shipping of characters that aren't explicitly coded as being queer, right? That says to me, that is proof positive that the people who love this product, who love this universe, who are going to spend their money on, you know, whatever it is that you turn out going forward are open to the idea. Um, you know, before the release of both The Force Awakens and Rogue One, there were, I don't, I don't, I don't want to, you know, make them out to be more than they were, but there were somewhat vocal minorities who were like, oh, we're going to boycott this movie because of a female lead or because of a black lead, um, right, for both films. Um, and then the positivity with which the public has responded to Ray and to Finn and to Jin and to Cheered and to Baze says, no, 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 this is fine, right? Um, but more than just validating that which is explicitly on the screen in terms of like racial and gender representation, what the fandom community I feel is saying is like, no, like the next time that you are drafting up new characters or the next time you are making important decisions about the further characterization of these people, be open to the idea that they you know, are gay or lesbian, bi, trans, what have you, because we are, like, we're here for it. Why not? Don't be afraid that there's going to be some kind of backlash, um, at least here from, you know, an American audience. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if in the expanded universe that we're getting with additional backstory for these two, that more is dealt with that way. Because they feel more secure, like, putting that stuff clearly in the out, out of the main big-budget product and in a separate one. It's sort of like we weren't allowed to see in, like, in Avatar, A Legend of Korra, they weren't allowed to have Korra and Asami be undeniably right. a couple. But in the comics, right. they will be. And I, I suspect the same thing will be true of these two. But I was surprised at the fact that all these straight people didn't immediately interpret these two as being in love with each other. Because I, like, I wasn't going into this movie looking for that or expecting it. And it was just like, this is how an old married couple interacts with each other. Like, right. And I, I could not figure out any other justifiable reason for why their behaviors were the way they were, like, with each other. And, like, the things they said to each other were romantic. Like, I, I don't know. But I suspect, and I don't want to act like Star Wars is, like, these fucking saints because we shouldn't have to be having this debate, right? But right. I suspect, but I suspect that the that the, um, the extra universe stuff will, for because the, these are the only two who really, it makes sense having too much story for beyond the, the beyond what we've already seen frankly I, anyway i do not have any insider information about it but i will speak this into the universe greg rucka um, who recently confirmed the canonical queerness of wonder woman um which i feel mm -hmm. like a lot of people you know sort of got into a big hullabaloo about greg rucka is set to write a um a kid's book actually that is about bays and cheer it um that's out Ooh, uh, later this out. may hmm. It's a middle, it's a middle school novelization, and I feel like oh, okay, like there's like there, yeah. So no, not not a kids kids book. I mean like a, you want to read a book about Star Wars that actually delves into the backstory of these characters, like at an age where I think that introducing the idea of a loving queer couple might be a little eyebrow raising, not for its scandalousness, but like a, oh, like these are the kind of books that kids like that we want kids to be reading more of. I think mean, in my in my in my deepest heart of hearts, like there is a nice symmetry for this book introducing um, Bayes and Sheard's um, relationship as being more than just platonic in a soft enough way that it isn't like an in-your-face, these guys, these guys are gay, but is explicit enough to be like, well, these people, you know, these people do have a relationship that is a bit more on the, 
on the romantic side. We'll see. We'll see. We'll like come May, I will definitely stop by a bookstore and pick it up. Yeah, I think that Rock Up being given it is is a, is significant. Um, yeah, that it's middle grade and not small children. Um, but yeah, I would like Star Wars to acknowledge the world and people in it. I I I, I just try to think about whether or not as a child I would have interpreted it this way because that matters a lot to me too. But like I wouldn't have mm. seen this movie when I was very young anyhow. So you know what I right. mean? Like this is much more of an adult like, movie. As a as like a young gay kid, I never grew up. Um, I never like having seen like a couple of the um, I guess the like, the original trilogy. I never got like a like a shippy vibe from uh, Qui Gon Jinn and Obi Wan Kenobi. You know what I mean? Like there was never. It was a much more like master mentor relation or like mentor mentee relationship between the two mm-hmm. of them, and the idea of like any kind of romantic budding between the two of them, or later on between Obi Wan and Anakin, that was just never. I feel like even by today's standards, that would not be an immediate ship that people would make if those films were to come out now. Um, whereas with Bayes and Chirrut, there is an intimacy between the two of them, right? There's a closeness and familiarity that is, I feel like to, to, to most people reads as being a lot more than just a friendship. And it is definitely intentional, um, both in the writing and the performances. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that sounds, that sounds right. I, I actually wanted to say, I feel stupid I haven't brought this up sooner about the writing, like, you know, they, they kept bringing in different writers to do rewrites, and I was struck, I didn't realize mm. that Tony Gilroy was the last person that got brought huh. in on this, and I used to work at the Writers Guild East, and, like, writers love Tony Gilroy, like, like maybe it was just like the staff and organize, and members who I spent time with, but it'd be like, oh, Tony yeah. Gilroy is going to be there, like, he was like, he's like a script writer, script writer, you know? So mm-hmm. I think that it was interesting, like that in the last line of defense, they're like, ah, script writer, script writer, and bring him in. And like that shifted, it seems like a lot of the, um, to lose some of the Saw Gerrera and to expand mm-hmm. some of the other pieces. Uh, it, 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 it's interesting that, that that's who they landed with at the last piece of it. I, you know, for a film that is so dense as um, Rogue One, I would be very open to seeing an expanded director's cut. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Or I, rather, I, 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 I always feel this way when there are rumors of like heavy reshoots, like Suicide Squad. But I'm, but in this in particular, I feel like the expanded, longer, perhaps moodier, darker version of this film that existed before Gilroy's editing and cuts it's something that like I would pay good money to see. Yeah. I mean, I think he was just doing script work, so I don't know. Okay. You know, but, but yeah, I would be happy to see how I book a back shot. I'd be happy to see an extended one. I'd love to see the other versions of it. Um, one of the things that we probably, that probably like, you know, we, I, I didn't really hit on that. I do want to make sure in terms of performances was how great Alan Tudok was as, the the greatest android performance. It was <laughs> he just nailed it time and again. And I want to point out he's an experienced voice actor who does voices for cartoon shows all the time. And I think that matters. 
Like when you cast a voice actor who does voice acting and an important voice role, that actor will do a better job than a random Hollywood celebrity. Very true. <laughs> yep. I, and um, I, I, I think that a lot of people said that that's their favorite performance from the whole movie, and I, I can understand why. I, I also just say coming out of this, I definitely have a new interest in reading Karen Gillan's Darth Vader comic that he did for Marvel. Um, oh, my God. I, read them yeah. they're very good i read them there so like <laughs> i one of the like the, the one little bit of rogue one news or like rumor rather that i um let myself read before i went to go see it um were that the two droids who are analogs to c3po and r2d2 would be making their cinematic uh, like debut um and like not to spoil their characters but essentially imagine if R2-D2 and C-3PO were sadistic torturing robots as opposed to a polite <laughs> protocol droid and, um, you know, um, uh, I, forget what, I forget what kind of droid R2-D2 is. Um, um, yes. But I feel like uh, the C-3PO analog's name is Triple Zero, and he, rather than specializing in, like, languages and protocols, he specializes in torture and maiming um, and sort of serves as part of Vader's crew to help him extract information, you know, from unruly rebels um and then that was honestly that is my biggest regret um from this uh, from rogue one was that they the two of them did not just you know make a very brief appearance even if it was just seeing you know a glint of the two of them in the shadows standing there in um invaders <laughs> invaders chamber while they awaited their commands um, but they are they are featured heavily throughout um his books that throughout the gillen uh, darth vader books and they are fantastic So we're coming up on, uh, I know that you have to go at 9.15, so I wanted to uh, give folks a chance to say um, if you had anything final to share and then where folks can find you on the Internet. Um, Yeah, I think that, like, I would highly recommend going into, like, if you haven't seen Rogan yet, go into it with an open mind that it will recontextualize a lot of the original trilogy for you in a way that helps it make a lot more sense as a cohesive story and not just, you know, the random, the random musings of a young George Lucas. Um, The, you know, my, the the thing that I love the most about this film and it's the, it's the pragmatist in my mind is that it finally explains why all the death stars have that fatal error, right? Like that is, (laughs) that is one of the things that took me out of the first three movies. Like, well, why wouldn't you close this hatch? That's dumb. Like that's, that's literally just bad, bad writing. And rogue one introduces a very legitimate and clever uh, way of explaining that. And it opens up, I'd rather, I think that uh, like as a part of like meta commentary, it invites a lot more, clever, thoughtful thinking for future spinoffs in the Star Wars universe. I don't know what to expect from the young Han Solo film, um, but I hope that it similarly um, goes out of its way to build out the universe in like a, in a, in a meaningful way. That's not just supposed to be like a rehash of like Han and his youth. Um, But yeah, I love the film. Like for all of the, the little nitpicky bits that I have about it, it is my favorite Star Wars movie, um, just because there is the, the nihilist in me that appreciates a war movie in which people die and don't come back. Um, mm-hmm. but yeah. I don't think that's nihilistic. I think that's <laughs> believing in peace, like to recognize what war actually entails and that it's not sexy, yeah. you know? Right. So thank well, you right, for sharing. Right, right. And folks can find you online at? 
They can Twitter find account? me. Um, I'm on the Twitters, man. That's where I spend the bulk of my time. I'm at Charles Pulliam, um, and I, I tend to respond back if you've got something clever to say. So come find me. <laughs> and Sean, what about you? Thank you for joining us. Sean, what about you? Uh, yeah, I, I just want to make sure I'm back. You can hear me, right? You are so back. Yes. Okay. Um, let's see. The last thing I have to say about Rogue One is about the diversity of the cast. Um, I I don't feel like celebrating it because it felt really normal to me. It didn't feel like anybody <laughs> was shoehorned in. didn't feel like this big spectacle of, of rainbow diversity, whatever. It It was just like people th- that made sense in the roles that they were. And let's just do that from now on, please. Um, and I am also <laughs> on Twitter and I also respond. Uh, and my Twitter handle is at no totally and follow me. Don't follow Charles. Follow me instead. Nice. Thanks guys. Um, and <laughs> I, I'm Ilana. I'm E L A N A underscore Brooklyn. And with graphic policy at graphic policy, you will always find us online at graphicpolicy.com. This podcast will be available to download within the next couple hours. You'll get it on iTunes if you missed the beginning, Stitcher, SoundCloud. We're in all those places. I didn't even get to talk about my theory of how this movie disproves the great man theory, which is a good thing because we'll probably be a second episode about Rogue One with two political organizers talking about it from the perspective of the movie as a vehicle for organizing. Um, so I hope that you are interested in more conversation around Star Wars Rogue One with, uh, that you'll join us for that episode as well. And uh, we'll be back at Graphic Policy doing the normal comics thing on Monday with a writer of an amazing comic series, and we'll tell you about that soon. So thank you guys, and um, see you all online and on Twitter soon. Thanks, Alana. Bye. Bye, guys. Bye-bye. Have a great weekend. I guess you're supposed to sign off saying keep it kiki. If I guess if I have a few moments, I'll just say that our guest on Monday is going to be Magdalena Visaggio. She's the writer of Kim and Kim, and she has a new comic coming out very soon called